A few years ago, in France, uh, there was a family who noticed a leak in their ceiling. So they did what any of us would do. They climbed up into the attic to investigate. And when they were up there, they discovered a large, beautiful painting. They had no idea it was there. And come to find out, this was not just any painting. This was an original from the, ni- from the, uh, from the early 1600s by an artist named Caravaggio, valued at $170 million. It had been sitting up in the attic for over 100 years, apparently, and the family never knew it existed until they stumbled upon it, covered up in the attic. They just lived unaware. And it kind of makes me wonder, was this, was this the type of family that was pinching pennies and clipping coupons just to make ends meet? Did the husband and wife ever stress over whether they could afford to fix the dishwasher, you know, things like that. Conversations that we have all had where a legitimate need comes up, but we just can't afford to address it. I wonder if that ever happened to them. Meanwhile, there's a priceless work of art gathering dust in the other room just above their heads. See, all, all along in that story, that family possessed immeasurable wealth. They just didn't realize it. They just hadn't taken hold of it, and therefore they couldn't enjoy it. And I think, I think a great many Christians live just like that. There are many people that I, you know, I believe in Jesus, and I do my best to, to be good and to be devoted, but I do it all without a true and deep sense of what I actually have in Jesus, of what it really means to be in Christ. See, maybe I see my faith as a good thing, it's important to me, but I don't view God as immeasurably great, and therefore I don't view Jesus as as the, the center of my heart and all my ambition is for his glory. No, that's not the kind of faith that a lot of us have. What we end up with often is a very nice and orderly and fairly comfortable kind of faith where God doesn't demand too much of me and I don't demand too much of him, you know, and we just, we just kind of live in good cohabitation together. Sure, there's a few leaks in the ceiling, life struggles that come and go, but otherwise I'm doing pretty good, I'm pretty content with what I have. This is how a lot of people of faith live and operate. We don't know how rich we are, we don't know what we really have, and therefore we don't live up to it. But y'all, Romans chapter 8 comes to us like a torpedo to bring an explosion to that way of life and that way of thinking. What the Apostle Paul has been showing us, we've spent now, this is our third week in the chapter, Paul has been showing us how truly blessed we are as Christians, that Jesus Christ has done for us and in us something that we could not possibly do for ourselves, something beyond our imagination. We are wealthy beyond measure. That's what Paul has been trying to show us. This is grace beyond measure that we've been given. And it's not, the Christian life, the the real Christian life, is not lying dormant up in the attic somewhere. No, when God brings his son to us and makes us uh, uh, Christians, the grace of God takes hold of us and it changes us. See, what we're seeing, I hope, in Romans 8 is that Jesus does not specialize in modest upgrades. He doesn't come just to make you a little better, a little happier. 
Jesus doesn't offer a comfortable, middle-of-the-ground kind of faith where we, don't, we try not to bother God too much and you know, we hope he doesn't ask too much of us. No, when we realize what we've actually been given in Christ, everything gets redefined. Everything changes. And I hope we'll see that today as we look at Romans chapter 8. We're getting close now to the middle of the chapter. We're going to really start in verse 12. But for the sake of context and for the sake of worship... I just, I'm going to read for us the first 11 verses, what we've already covered. If you've missed one of the last two weeks or both, that's okay. We're going to look at Romans 8 all the way through our, our current section today. And I'm just, I'm just going to read it. I'm not going to explain it. But uh, allow, if, if, you're, if you're the kind, if you're an auditory listener, you can close your eyes and just let the words seep in. But we're going to put them on the screen as well. Listen to what Paul says we have as those who follow Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who indwells you. So an original Caravaggio is worth 170 million, and it's dust compared to what we just read. The grace of God given to us through his son, Jesus Christ, defies calculation. So then, verse 12, here's a therefore, in light of what we just read. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, or you will die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, Paul has told us what we just read. We are no longer in the flesh, but we are in the Spirit. I tried my best to explain this last week, what it means to be in the flesh. It means... Primarily, it means that we are unsaved, that we are merely human. 
Left to ourselves in our sins, we are alienated from God, and therefore we cannot, will not, obey God and please God because we are far apart from God. The human heart has not been regenerated. We are still in the flesh. But Paul says you're no longer in the flesh because by faith in Christ you've been placed in the Spirit. And therefore we are no longer defined by our sin. We are no longer alienated from God. We are no longer in the realm of the flesh. Back in verse 2, Paul says we have been, by the Spirit of life, we have been set free from the power, the dominion of sin and of death. Therefore, Paul says, verse 12, there's a clear life application for us. If all those things are true and we've received them by faith in Christ, he says we are no longer obligated to the flesh to live according to it. This is an echo of something Paul says back in Romans 6. He asks a rhetorical question. How can we who have died to sin continue to live in it? And we recognize when we phrase the question like that, it makes no sense. That if I've died to something, if I've truly put it off, and if it's gone out of my life, I cannot continue to live in it. I can't continue to entertain it, to dabble in it even, because it is dead. That's the That's the reality that we now operate in as those who follow Jesus Christ. We are no longer in the flesh. We're in the spirit. The flesh is dead. We're meant to see it as dead. And if something's dead, we bury it. Right? We put it away. The point being, the flesh has no more claim on us. You don't owe it anything. You're no longer its debtor. We have no obligation. You're free. And I want you guys notice, Paul is not talking to us about degrees of behavior, good, better, best, right? We want to just find ourselves somewhere along that spectrum. He's not talking about degrees of behavior. He's talking about two different realms of existence, two different categories entirely. He's talking about life and death. And so in verse 13, he says, if you are living according to the flesh, you will die. And that is the sobering reality. That is eternal, final death and condemnation. That is eternal alienation from God. And that's the only outcome, he says, of the flesh. If you're walking down that path, the only possible end to the path is Death. There's no way in our flesh, on our own, that we can make it to God. Something has to happen. Something has to be done. God has to intervene, right? We've been talking about that. But listen, Paul says, if you're living according to the flesh, if you have not been regenerated, reborn by the Spirit of God, then there's only one possible outcome of that life. And it's not life at all. It's death. And so when Paul says we have no obligation... To that way of life any longer. That's something we take seriously. He's not talking about an optional way of life. He's talking about a new way of life. That we are under obligation, not to the flesh, but to the spirit, meaning we have a new master. We have a new reality that, that dominates and defines us. We've been made alive. And if that's true, if I have, if you have the Holy Spirit of God, then you are not just alive to God now, but you are being made holy. You are on the path to holiness, a new path, a new 
life, a new practical reality. And that's the second half of verse 13. He says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Uh, John Stott made a comment on this verse. He said, there is a kind of life that leads to death, and there is a kind of death that leads to life. We see that? Life in the flesh leads to death. It's not life at all. But there is a death, Paul says, if you put to death the deeds of the body, the old way of life, then you will live. It's death that leads to life. It echoes what Jesus said. Jesus said, if you try to save your own life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, will be saved. And so we have, by the Spirit of God, we have no condemnation. We have life and we have peace. And therefore, we're obligated to him. And we shouldn't view that as a bad thing. We don't like obligation, do we? You don't like being tied into a, uh, you know, a cable contract, right? You don't like, that's why we like Netflix. Netflix, you cancel anytime you want. Right? We're not obligated beyond the day itself. But this is the kind of obligation we should crave and desire, that the Lord is master over us now. We are no longer chained and bound to what we were. But we're now connected into God. We belong to him. And therefore, we put to death the deeds of the body. Uh, y'all, this is, this is a non-negotiable for the Christian life. Uh, the Apostle Paul harps on this frequently in his writing. And he actually says it a lot more forcefully. If you read through Galatians 5, and I would encourage you to, because he goes, he goes on at length in Galatians 5 about this same topic. But he says there in Galatians 5, he says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Same principle, but he gives us even, an even more vivid image there. Putting to death the deeds of the body, he says, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you crucify the old self, the flesh, and all of its desires. That is to say, just as Jesus was crucified on the cross for our sins, so we now daily, we take our sin, the sin that still entangles us and tempts us, the sin that we delight in and want to entertain and keep around. Paul says, no, you do it like Christ would do it. You put it to death. He died for that sin. And so you make it your heart's desire to put that sin to death in your daily practice. Y'all, the, the Christian life is a life of joy and gladness and sweetness and goodness, but it's not patty cake. It's not patty cake. Um, the Spirit of God has given us life, and therefore we engage in war against death, against all that kept us from God in the first place. You wage war against sin. What I tend to do, and I'm sure a lot of us can resonate here, what I tend to do is I, I, I treat my sin so often as harmless and kind of neutral, especially if it's not too bad, not the kind of stuff that I'd get fired for, not the kind of stuff that would, you know, destroy my reputation. It's not that bad. So I'll say to myself, man, everybody does that. What's the big deal? Or we might say to ourselves, you know, I'm, I, I'm otherwise a good person. I do a lot of good things. So if I dabble in this from time to time, if I engage in this, who cares? Right? I deserve this. We'll tell ourselves whatever we have to tell ourselves, right, to justify it. But what Paul says here, we're meant to look at our sin 
for what it really is. I mean, what it really is. That our sin is what condemned us for which Christ had to die. Our sin enslaved us from which the Holy Spirit has set us free. See, we don't look at sin and as a neutral or harmless thing. We look at sin, think about what it's done to you. Think about what it's done to the world. Think about what it does to God and how it grieves God. We should hate it. If we recognize what it really is and what it really accomplishes, it's death and we should hate it. We should declare war on it. We should renounce sin and put it to death. Now, how do we do this? I mean, how how do you actually begin that process? That seems like an extreme thing to do, right? Where, Where do I even start? Well, it starts by emphasizing a little phrase right in the middle of verse 13. It's almost, it's easy to miss. Three little words. Paul says, by the Spirit. By the Spirit, we put to death the deeds of the body. Y'all, that means, listen, if sin frustrates you, if it bothers you, if you grieve it and its consequences, if you hate it, you didn't come to that place on your own. That is the Holy Spirit of God inside of you, producing that desire to conquer your sin. God does that in our hearts. And what's more, God then actually gives us the ability to conquer sin. We have, no, we have no ability in the flesh to do anything about our ultimate problem, but now by the Spirit, because of God's Spirit indwelling us, we actually can win this victory. We're no longer obligated to the flesh because the Spirit is within us. Point being, God has not left us alone in this battle. This is not up to us to figure out. God has come in, and he is now declaring that we can have victory here. And so if this, if this thought of conquering sin, putting it to death, if it intimidates you, and it probably does, or maybe it, it's such a defeating and deflating thing to you, because you know how hard you've tried over the years, and it doesn't seem like you've gotten any closer to God, any better, any more holy than you were to begin with, It may be the same sin in particular. It's defeated you so many times that you wonder, what's the point of even trying anymore? Maybe you do well for a little while, but then you binge entirely back into it, right? And you find yourself worse off than before. Y'all, we all know what that feels like. I do. If you're intimidated, if you're scared, if you feel defeated in this pursuit, then I want to give some encouragement here. The Apostle Paul is talking about, when he he talks about sin and the flesh and death, clearly those are bad things, those are negative things. But Paul doesn't approach this conversation from the negative perspective. Paul does not appeal to our guilt in an effort to change our behavior. He could. Paul could say, look how bad you've been. Look at the stuff you're doing even still. How can you? How can you treat God like that? But that's not what Paul's doing in Romans 8. Paul's Paul's going positive here. When Paul talks about putting sin to death, in the larger context of what we're reading, he's not saying, look how bad you've been. He's saying, look how good you've got it. Look how rich you are. You've got the Holy Spirit leading you into righteousness, setting you free. That's ultimately what we have. this 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 is a winning battle we're fighting right here. That's what Paul's trying to show us. And I I know this, I say I know, I I assume this is true for a lot of us. 
that when we think about putting sin to death, how do we deal with sin? How do we think about our sin? Almost all of us, we come to it with this mentality of we'll just heap on the guilt and the fear until the problem gets solved. Because maybe that's the kind of church you grew up in, or maybe that's the kind of home you grew up in. The thought being, if I feel bad enough about what I've done, and if I'm scared enough of the consequences, then I'll change. If you feel bad enough and if you're scared enough, you'll change your behavior. You'll get right. You'll figure it out. And there's enough truth in that to to deceive us, isn't there? Y'all, the truth is guilt and fear will get you moving. Guilt and fear will get us, uh, will will promote action. Right? Um, But guilt and fear are cheap motivators that can't change the heart. And I'm going to say that again. Guilt and fear are cheap motivators that cannot change the human heart. That's the old way of the flesh. Everybody feels bad about stuff they do. Everybody fears the consequences, right, of getting caught. You don't have to be a Christian to know what that feels like. But guilt and fear, that's, that's not what Paul is appealing to here. He's not talking about the old way of the flesh. He's talking about the new way of the Spirit. We're no longer motivated by guilt and fear because that can't change us anyway. Look at, look at verse 14. What is Paul appealing to right here as to what changes us and makes us holy? Verse 14, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Y'all, the, the, the Spirit has taken up residence within you to set you free and to lead you into righteousness. You are being led by the Spirit to conquer sin. And this is evidence of your relationship with God. Right? This is evidence of relationship. This is not cause and effect. You cleaning your life up is not what gets you to God. You're already His. And therefore, your pursuit of holiness, godliness, righteousness, it's evidence of what's already there. The Spirit is showing you who you are. The Spirit leads those who belong to Him. Now look at this, verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. God has not doubled down on you. Insisting that you become righteous on your own. God has not left you as a slave to sin, heaping on the guilt and fear in an effort to redirect your bad behavior. No, God has given you a new spirit. The spirit of adoption as sons, Paul says. As his own child, God has actually brought you into his family. And through the Holy Spirit, we are given sonship. That means true love relationship with God. That means personal and immediate access to God as our Heavenly Father. And now, by the Spirit, Paul says, we cry out, Abba, Father. And y'all, that little phrase is so significant. Because this is what Jesus called the Father. Abba. When the Son of God addressed 
God the Father, he called him Abba. Now, what's so significant about that? Y'all, a, a good Jewish person would have never called God Abba. Because that was the common everyday word that children used for their dad. This was what children would say in the home when they referred to their own dad. And so the thought is how vulgar, how demeaning it would be for any self-respecting religious person to call God that name. Almighty God? No, you approach God with fear and with reverence and with absolute formality. You don't call him dad. That, that, that lowers him down, right? That brings him down to be like one of us. God could never do that. But along comes Jesus, and he calls Almighty God Daddy, Abba. Deep, personal, familial relationship. And Paul says, by the Spirit, we do the same thing. By the Spirit, we carry the same flavor now of relationship, the same access. We come to God, not as slaves, not as those condemned in our sin, but we come to God as children dearly loved, without pretense, without apology, without dressing ourselves up first. No formal religious layers between us to soften things up so that God might accept me. No, you are his child. He is your Abba. You don't have to knock first. You just come right on in. Because that's the relationship he's given to you through his son and his spirit. Y'all, I was watching last night with our kids the remake of The Lion King, the newer one. And whether you've seen the newer one or the older one, you know the scene at the beginning of the movie early on when young Simba finds himself surrounded by hyenas and they're about to attack and kill him. And he roars to try to stop them. And of course, his roar is just is very pathetic and they laugh in his face. But then a roar comes through the canyon. And it's not Simba's roar, it's his dad, it's Mufasa, the king, who roars and then disposes of the hyenas and saves his son's life. Well, right after that, they're sitting together and of course, Mufasa's disciplining his son. But then he pushes him over and they begin to fight. It's a little play fight like a father and son have. And before long, Simba's on top of his dad, you know, like we dads do with our kids. You know, he's letting him win. And there's such an interesting picture right there. This is, this is Mufasa, the biggest, baddest, strongest creature in the land. Nobody messes with him. Nobody. And yet in that moment, his son has access. His son gets to see a side of his dad that nobody else gets to see. He gets to come in close, and he's in no danger at all because he is his son. And y'all, this is, this is what we've been given. We cry out, Abba, Father, we get to come in close. Almighty God is not far away with his finger on the button because you've been so bad. No, by Jesus Christ, we've been brought near. And we get to call God, the same thing Jesus called him. That is amazing. And y'all, this has application for all of life. Think about how you pray. Do you think you'd pray differently if you really believed in what this scripture is saying about your relationship with God? Do you think you'd make different decisions than you do? Do you think you would approach sin differently? That's a lot of what we've been talking about. Think about how we view our sin 
What if your desire to put sin to death was not driven by guilt or fear, but by love? By love for for your heavenly Father and by His love for you. How much more motivating, how much more empowering that battle becomes when your heart is fixed on God and His grace and His love for you and the extent to which He was willing to go to prove His love for you by sending His Son to take your condemnation for you. Does that change our approach? Does that change our motivation? It should. See, you're never going to overcome sin simply by feeling bad and trying harder. We've, we've, most of us have learned that lesson the hard way. We've all felt terrible, promised to never do it again, and then found ourselves in the same place, usually within the week. Because you can't defeat sin that way. Feeling bad, trying harder, that doesn't work. The only way we overcome sin, the love that we have for sin, is if a greater love takes its place. The more we see God as our merciful Father, the more we love Him and cherish Him and delight in Him, the less desirable sin becomes. There's less room in my heart for it because it's occupied with a greater love and a greater grace. Y'all, come back with me for just a second to this family in France. And just try to imagine all the lost time that passed where they lived in that house but never knew what they had. Stuck there up in the attic, unaware. Think about all that time that passed before they discovered that painting. This is, this, they are what I would, what would call potentially wealthy. All that time, they were potentially wealthy. The painting was there. It belonged to them. The house was theirs. It was worth a fortune. It didn't become valuable somehow after they found it. No, it was always worth that much money, but it was only potential. It hadn't been realized yet, and therefore it couldn't be enjoyed. Now, I'm tempted to think of the Christian life like that. That I've got so much spiritual potential if I could just get my act together. Don't you know that feeling? Oh, if I could just clean myself up, if I could just get my priorities straight, how much could God do with me? We've all got so much potential. If we could just figure things out first, right, then God could really use us. Then God would be pleased with us. Um, and, and I get that. And, and maybe there's a little something to that, maybe. But that's not Romans 8. Y'all, Romans 8 is not about potential. God does not love you based on your potential. God did not save you based on your potential. No, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't hold His blessings, His promises, up in the attic somewhere waiting for you to make your way up to find them. No, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ then the fullness of God's grace and His blessing and His riches and His promises are yours now, right now. Not potentially yours. Not yours if you could ever figure things out and get your life together. Right now they belong to us as a free gift by faith. And that's why Paul says in verse 16, look at how this section ends. He says, The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. This one of the one of the Spirit's primary roles is assurance. When we are tempted to doubt God's love, the Spirit affirms it. When we when we are tempted to see ourselves as outsiders looking in because we know what we've done and we know surely we couldn't deserve what God came to give, the Spirit reminds us, you are his child. You're not on the outside any longer. You are no longer in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. And God will not cast out his children. You are his, and therefore you are his heir. You are an heir of God and a fellow heir with Christ. Y'all, in, in the ancient world, uh, adoption, primarily what adoption was for, is a man who lacked a son to carry on the family name. And if he didn't have a natural-born son, then most often that man would find another man to adopt, to bring in, so that he would honor the family name and carry it on, and so that he would receive the man's inheritance. That's what adoption was. And so when Paul uses that term, people would have understood this idea that someone is being grafted into the family, they're being brought in, and now they share the name, they share all the rights and privileges, they share in the inheritance as if they were a natural-born child. It all belongs to them now. That God has adopted us as children, and he's given us his name. That we belong to him now and forever. All the rights and privileges of sonship are ours And, Paul says, if if it wasn't enough to be a child in the present, he says, you're also an heir of what is to come. Just as Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, never to die again, in the glory of God, uh, eternal in heaven, all of what Jesus Christ has and all of what he has to give is now stored up, reserved in heaven also for you. We share in his inheritance. We are fellow heirs with him. We have the fullness of sonship now, and we're promised the fullness of God's eternal riches that are to come. Those things are not potentially true. They are true today, and they carry on through eternity. Jesus said, no one can snatch what are, who are mine out of my hand. None of them will be lost. If you have received the grace of the Holy Spirit... These things are as good as done. Not potentially true. Absolute. Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Now, y'all, there's a huge condition that was tacked on there at the end. I'm sure you noticed it. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Now, we're going to talk about that more fully next week. Paul's going to talk about suffering there in the middle of Romans 8. But think about this in the larger picture, the larger context. Um, By faith in Christ, all of Romans 8 has told us this. By faith in Christ, we're united with Christ. We've been made, uh, we have union with him. We are in Christ. And therefore, we share in his life. We share in his sonship. We call God Abba, just as he did. We share in his holiness. We share in his righteousness. We share in his inheritance. We share in his glory. All of it. And also we share in his sufferings which is not a contradiction to the rest. And again, we'll look at that next week. But we have been made one with Jesus Christ, and therefore all that is his is now ours to enjoy, now and forever. Do you see how this might redefine our reality? You're no longer obligated to what you were. You're free. 
you belong to someone else. Y'all, when, when Charles Wesley became a Christian years and years ago, he went from a fairly nice, comfortable, formal brand of religion to something new. And he wrote about it, wrote many songs. I'm going I'm to read to you a few uh, little lines here from one of his famous songs. Listen to what happened to Charles Wesley. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the joy of this truth, and let it be true of us, that we are not in the flesh fighting and scrapping just to be good and decent people, or even religious people, but that we have come to faith in Jesus, and we now have the Holy Spirit to indwell us. We are not the same. And Father, would you bring these truths home to our hearts that we're not under obligation any longer to what we were, to the sins and temptations that once ruled our hearts, that we can put those things to death by the Spirit. Lord, don't protect us, Father, from from being intimidated, from being scared, from feeling defeated. Now, we are victors because you have won the victory. We will, we can overcome that which brings death to our lives. But Lord, get us serious about it. Make us serious about it. Lord, for those of us who drift into easy, comfortable, manageable spirituality. Lord, bring your truth in um, to, to tear that down. And Lord, let us see it. If, we, if, if Christ has died for our sin, if the Spirit has set us free from sin and death, that we would want nothing to do with it any longer. And we would delight to put it away. Lord, change our our view of, of darkness and that which leads to death. And Lord, let us live in the light of your grace. Father, thank you that that you've not left us to figure this one out. Thank you, Lord, that guilt and fear are not how you rule over us. But that you rule as a father to children that we enter in and call you Abba, that you are close enough to listen to every cry, that you are strong enough to meet every need, and that our desire and our ability to conquer sin is by the Spirit. We will win by your grace. Father, thank you that that as your children... We can pray these words, not with our fingers crossed. We pray with confidence that, Lord, while our spirit lie in prison, hopeless and dead,
you entered in and gave life. You set us free, and now we follow you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the grace to do these things by faith. We love you. We ask your grace for every step as we seek to live more and more by the Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that it's all made possible by your grace come to us. In Jesus' name, amen.